Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Hina Jilani is one of the world's leading human rights lawyers. An extraordinary woman, she co-founded and heads the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan and opened the country's first all-women law firm and first legal aid center. Ms. Jelani has led several prominent investigations for the UN and served for eight years as the Special Representative on Human Rights Defenders. She's a member of the Elders, founded by Nelson Mandela, a small group of noted global thinkers. Past and current members include Jimmy Carter, Desmond Tutu, Ban Ki-moon, and Mary Robinson. And despite serious attempts on her life in Pakistan, Hina Jalani refuses to back down from her work. I do fear like all normal people fear, but I have no other option. Ideas producer Mary Link met Ms. Jalani when she was making her podcast series, The Kill List. It explores the mysterious death in late 2020 of a young Pakistani dissident in Canada, Karima Baluch. She was Baluch, an ethnic group who have lived for thousands of years in Baluchistan, which became part of Pakistan after the country was formed in the late 1940s. There was concern that Karima had been killed because of her activism against human rights violations of her people by the state. Here's an excerpt from The Kill List. In the days following the discovery of Karima's body in the frigid waters off Toronto Islands, protesters took to the streets of towns and cities throughout Baluchistan and also in Karachi, Pakistan's largest city. She was kind of a beacon of hope for the people of Baluchistan. That was an excerpt from the CBC podcast, The Kill List. It explores both the life of the dissident Karima Baluch and what she was fighting against, the enforced disappearances of her tribal people by the state of Pakistan. According to the UN, Pakistan has one of the world's worst records of enforced disappearances, the illegal kidnappings of one citizens. The International Criminal Court considers it a crime against humanity. When Mary first interviewed Hina for the kill list, it was long distance and via the internet. Hina in Lahore and Mary in Halifax. So when Ms. Jelani was visiting her family in Canada, Mary was finally able to meet her face to face. They sat down at her sister's home in Toronto. We're calling this program Quest for a Better World, the life and work of Hina Jelani. We're lucky to have you here. It's so lovely to meet you in person. You and I have done interviews 
via the computer for a podcast series that I did. That's right. And I was incredibly struck by you as a person, your resume, all the things you've accomplished. So I'm really honored to be here with you today. Well, thank you very much. It's been uh, a long time in this field. So many memories. Hina, you've been quoted as saying civil society is struggling and we are watching as if a cricket match is going on. I feel that we are being made to become irrelevant. That's what is dangerous for me, because I think that the civil society, especially in countries like mine, where there is a great need to balance the power of the state by a strong civil society voice, that may be disappearing. You said in recent years, after decades working as a civil rights lawyer, you said that you felt absolutely overwhelmed, not defeated, but overwhelmed by the state of your country. Where do you see your country going now? I mean, I know it's in, it's, it's in a tough situation, but where do you see it going with all the things you're talking about, hoping for a more robust uh, civil society? I'm just hoping that the civil society will once again uh, use its resilience to fight back and I think at the worst times, especially if you if you remember the time of Ziaul Haq, which was one of the f- worst martial laws that we've had, it was the resistance that gave us the energy to fight back. Well, that's really interesting. Okay, so you mentioned uh, General Zia, and that is when you became a lawyer under martial law, under his, his rule. So take me back to your childhood, you and your sister, the late Asma, Jangir. Also a lawyer, were taught at an early age, as I suppose your other two siblings as well, not to turn your back on injustices. Tell me about that. You know, that was really my father. He was a politician. But more than a politician, he was, I think now, if we look back at his work and his um, activities, he was more of a human rights defender, really. And uh, I think when he became a member of the parliament during a military dictatorship, he was the one who, after one of the military-imposed constitutions came into force, he was the one who made a very inspirational speech in the parliament on fundamental freedoms and human rights. And after that, the new chapter on fundamental freedoms was added to that constitution. So he really believed. How old were you when he gave that speech? I must have been 10, 11 years old. I was growing up in an environment in which freedom was really what we were all talking about all the time because my father was in prison all the time while we were growing up as children and my mother, of course, had a hard time raising four children. But that is what really taught me a few things. First one was always do what is contrary to what the government wants to install as a narrative knowing fully well what the consequences are. Because my father never said anything without knowing that this use of freedom of speech or freedom of assembly can cause you trouble. Can cause you death. Cause you death. There were many assassination attempts on him. Talk about the time at your house. There was a sniper on, on the building nearby to kill your father. What happened? Yeah, this, this was when I was, this was in 1965. I must have been 12, 13 years old at that time. And um, uh, my father was very busy in an election that was being contested between this military leader and the sister of the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. 
And my father was, of course, um, on Miss Jinnah's side, and he was campaigning for her at that time. And um, he had a journalist who had come to interview him. And uh, suddenly he heard that Miss Jinnah wanted him to come to Karachi. So he took a plane to Karachi. And the journalist and another politician who was staying in our house, they returned in the same car to our house. And as they came out of the car, um, over the wall in the next house, there were assassins who started shooting. And that poor journalist who had who looked really, his stature was like my father, they thought it was him. And he died. He was a young man. He had a two-year-old child. Were you there? We were there in the house. What do you remember? We remember these um, terrible gunshots. And uh, then we, uh, my older sister, who, who you just met, she was the one who went out, discovered that these were people who had been very seriously injured. So she tried to administer some first aid, whatever she knew. She was hardly 15 years, 16 years old at that time. And then, of course, we found that this one man had died. The other was very seriously injured. Even the driver was injured. But because he was a brave man, he had the courage to pick up the injured person and take him to hospital immediately, even though he himself was injured. And then, of course, the family gathered and friends gathered and the political uh, allies also came to the house. So it was a terrible time. And I remember for years, uh, while um, when I was still very young, if there was a loud bang, it would frighten me. But your father, because you're saying he, he said you have to accept what, what can happen. How do you deal with fear? Because you've had your own, and we'll talk about that in a second, you've had your own assassination attempts on you. How do you deal with fear? Like, do you do the same thing? Do you just say, maybe this is my last day every day? when you're in- no, no, I don't. I don't. Um, I, I'm not stupid, and I know that the threats are real, and the risk is real when you're doing this kind of a job, and you're in the field of human rights. But at the same time, I don't let that rule my life. I, I'm not very courageous, let me confess. I, I do fear like all normal people fear, but I have no other option. And the, the, the fear uh, that I have to live in an environment and not do something about it and let that environment even worsen around me, that fear is much greater than any other fear. For your life. You, you graduated at the top of your class, and both you and your sister went on to study law, and you started practicing law in Pakistan in 1979, Lahore. Uh, when it was under martial law that we were talking about that, under imposed by General Zia. Take me back to opening up this law firm. And this law firm was all women lawyers. Tell me about that. Well, let me correct you for one thing. Oh, sorry. I was never on the top of my class. Or was class. it your sister on the top of the class? N- neither of us. Oh, I someone think, said um, you were. Both of us were very average students. Oh, really? But our commitment, my commitment to law was not very strong when I was still deciding on what to do after my graduation from college. But once I had taken up this profession of law, I enjoyed it so much. And the direction that I took, I'm very glad that I did. I haven't regretted it even for a day. But the commitment came with the work. And the kind of work that I did was something that really gave me a lot of satisfaction, for one thing. And for another, it not only gives me the energy to work in a very non-conducive environment, but it also gives me hope because I believe in my struggle in more, more than in success. I think success is always a bonus. But when you are struggling, there is still hope. If you stop struggling, there is no hope. So that's what made me go on. 
and uh, take uh, law as a means of addressing the uh, injustices that I saw around me. And I've said this many times, but what makes me go is the not letting go of this feeling of outrage. If something that I see around me and I see that that is not right, that is not fair, that is not just, I can't just turn away from it. And I hope that even though now I'm going to be turning 70 next year, I hope that I still am not jaded by what I've seen in my life and can still feel that outrage, and I still do. So there has never been a moment where I have thought, you know, uh, or given way to pessimism. I don't. Uh, sometimes I have to force myself to be optimistic, but I think that's what really makes everyone who is a human rights defender go on. My favorite line that I have, and I think about all the time, and not in a religious sense, but keep the faith, it's easily lost. You can't give up. You can't give up because there is no other option, as I said. If you give up, then what do you do? Then you just surrender to the circumstances in which you are living. My struggle is to be able to change it, maybe not in my lifetime, but at least set the stage for the next generation to be able to struggle like we have in the first place and have enough space, even though the change may not come quickly. But the space to struggle is important, and that we have to keep. So you had this law firm with your sister, and it was all female. Yeah. When I started, I uh, my sister became a lawyer after I did, although she, uh, she is a year older to me. But she had gotten married, and she did her law later on. But I started practicing much earlier than Asma did. Uh, and then there was a time when I thought, you know, this is the end. I need to now kind of go forward in my career. And Asma had just graduated from law school. And then she, it was really her idea that we set up our own firm. And uh, of course, I took the lead because I had more experience than her. But then there were two other friends that we kind of persuaded to join us. So four of us started this first all-female law firm. And because we were women and we understood women's issues and the kind of social repression and the legal disadvantages that we had, our first clients were obviously women. And then during Ziaul Haq's time, there was also these so-called Islamic laws, which were really weighed against women, both socially and legally. So we kind of naturally fell into their focus on women's rights. So this kind of our legal practice was really based on changing the judicial mindset. And as human rights defenders, we were also called upon many times to make this decision. Do we take the fight to the streets or to the courts? And we had to make that judgment. Sometimes we went to courts, feeling that there we might have a better chance. And at other times, we felt the courts are not going to give us that. So we have to kind of build off a public opinion first. When did you go to the streets? What's an All example? All the time. All the what, time. What, what was an example that I remember, uh, I think the most important example that I can give you is the first women's rally during Ziaul Haq's martial law on the 12th of February in 1983. We all gathered uh, on the main street in Lahore and then walked up to the Lahore High Court to protest against what we at that time thought and still do uh, was a very, very uh, obnoxious law that they had made in the name of religion, which was basically the law of zina 
uh, which um, uh, I know you you probably know more, quite a bit about it, but for your audience, this was a law that said any kind of extramarital sex would be punishable by stoning to death. And this became a tool for people to target women. If it was a husband who was not happy with his wife, he would use this tool to send her to prison. If it was a child, a, a female child, whose inheritance the rest of the family wanted to deny, they would charge them with this. So this had become a really obnoxious tool in the hands of family and the society to punish women for using their autonomy, their agency, their freedoms. So this was a terrible law. And I think on, on 12th of February, women of all ages and from all backgrounds uh, had this rally. And we were terribly treated, terribly by the police. We were brutally beaten up. And were you beaten? My, yes, and I still have this uh, kind of a injury on my hand where the, the police hit me with a baton. And um, I can still feel it sometimes. I can see it, actually. Yeah. There's a little raised yes, bump there. Yes, So these were things that happened to us as women. And then uh, we were arrested, but we were freed at the end of the day because of the public pressure. A lot of people came to the police station where we were, and I think the military authorities thought it was a good thing to let these women go because they were getting very bad publicity. But they didn't stop there. Just a few months later... This happened in February. In August of the same year, my sister, myself and two others were put under house arrest. And we stayed under house arrest for a month because we were planning more demonstrations. And then we were freed for a few days. And then uh, some of the women were taken again to prison. And I was uh, held, I was charged under the martial law rules and uh, kept in preventive detention, taken to prison. That was my first time that I went to prison. And when you were talking about fear, you know what my life as the child of a politician who was frequently jailed, I wasn't afraid. Because for me, prison was not something that I had not seen before. I had gone and seen my father in prison many times as a child. So I, this was not what I feared. Prison was not something that I feared. What was that experience like in prison? Um, well, um, this is um, a secret, but I think I should tell. I think I'm the first person in the world who gained five pounds in prison. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, because the, the company was good. There were 18 of us, women, who were placed in one cell. And we were all activists. And there was this movement for restoration of democracy that was also going in. So that particular prison was full of other political activists. So we used to raise a slogan and it used to reverberate from other parts of the, of the prison. So it was... What would you say? What would the slogan be? Uh, against martial law, against the military dictator, uh, for democracy, for the restoration of democracy and for women's rights. Uh, making sure that we made uh, democracy a good space for women and um, made democracy in some ways associated with the promotion of women's rights. Because we also, as, as a women's movement, had realized very soon after making some mistakes in the beginning that our rights are not going to be promoted in isolation. We have to make links with other movements, whether it's movements for democracy, whether it was labor rights movements, uh, movements for the poor. 
And I think that's why the women's movement became so successful in the 1980s in Pakistan. Well, you said in some ways it's a women's movement that helped help push the overall human rights and the commission that it was because of the women's movement that you and your sister founded the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. And you look right now in Iran, it's the women who are talking about you know, the hijab, but it's bigger than that. But it represents something. And in Afghanistan, you know, again, there's brave women. Because we didn't have the choices that politicians have to make. We were very much inspired by international human rights values. And we felt those worked for us, especially in a society where there were anti-women notions that were so strong that within our own social backgrounds, we didn't have the values to refer to. So we we really felt that the international values of equality, non-discrimination, etc., although they were in our constitution as well, but the constitutions were not, in, uh, uh, fundamental rights in the constitution were not enforceable at that time. This was a very repressive military government. And let me just tell you that when I went to jail in, in September 1983, the charge against me for preventive detention was that I was creating despondency amongst the population. That was one of the charges. Now imagine, this is a regime that was flogging journalists publicly, that was doing public hangings, and I'm the one who's making the population despondent. So these are the kind of times that we have been. And blasphemy is another favorite one. Blasphemy came a little later. The blasphemy law came in the early 1990s. So explain that to people listening, what, what's been happening with the blasphemy. Because I know a lot of Pakistan uh, activists and dissidents who've been labeled with blasphemy. In 1992, this blasphemy law was instituted. No, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. It was during Ziaul Haq's time that the Pakistan Penal Code was amended to institute a crime of blasphemy, which was such a badly worded law that... You didn't have to have mens rea. You didn't have to have intent to commit. And what you said could subjectively, by the listener, be construed to be in any way disparaging of the holy prophet, peace be upon him. So uh, it was very subjective. And you know that in Islam, there are so many interpretations that somebody who doesn't agree with the way that you have said something can easily charge you or accuse you of uh, being disparaging. There was a young boy who had the blasphemy charge against him. I'm trying to think, remember now. The, 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 the most, uh, uh, of course, this was not the first one, but the most famous one is that of Salamat Masi, uh, a Christian boy, 12 years old, who was accused together with three of his uncles of blasphemy. And um, Asma took the challenge at that time, and she started defending the boy, I was defending one of the uncles. And they were convicted of blasphemy, which meant a mandatory death sentence. So this is this was the problem with the law. No intent to be criminally liable. A mandatory death sentence had to be given. So if the court decided that there was enough evidence... And what did they say they had done again? That they had uh, written some blasphemous words on small chits of paper and thrown it in the mosque. Eventually they were acquitted... Because it seemed that this particular child who was illiterate can't even write. So how 
were those chits found in the mosque. So there was something, I think it was some kind of a ulterior motive to involve them because of some property dispute that somebody had done that. But anyway, they were acquitted. But during the time that they were being tried, there were several attempts on their life and two of them actually died before they were even tried. Really? Yes, because they were killed. And this is an example of what happens to those who are accused of blasphemy. Uh, even before they are tried, somebody is going to go come and kill them. If, if they are acquitted and they're out of prison, their life is not worth anything, but somebody will come and kill them. What happened to the 12-year-old boy? The, the, the 12-year-old old boy, uh, fortunately, we were able to, to get him out of the country. And um, uh, I'm not quite sure, but if I remember correctly at that time, this is so many years ago, I think a German family adopted, adopted him once he had been given refugee status in, in Germany. And I'm sure he's doing well now. Yeah, I'd be curious to, to, to track him down. Yes. You're listening to Quest for a Better World, the life and work of Hina Jelani on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. We're a broadcast and a podcast. You can subscribe to Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hina Jelani is one of the most renowned human rights lawyers in the world. She co-founded and currently leads the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, and she has led several UN investigations around the globe. However, her passion for justice is the most fervent for the women of Pakistan. Let's return to her conversation with Ideas producer Mary Link and the 1999 murder of a client in front of Hina Jalani at her law office in Lahore, Pakistan. Let's go back to this former client of yours. This is a very famous case that that people know in Pakistan, not so much anywhere else. But Samia Sarwa, is that how you pronounce her name? Yes. Tell me about her story and that fateful day in your office. Tell me a bit about you her. You know, I also run a shelter for women. And this shelter I started because of the situation that I saw and I felt that restricting legal aid only to taking women's cases to courts was a wrong idea in Pakistan. And we had to do much more in terms of making legal assistance to women more meaningful. And when I looked at all the shelters that the government was running and the NGOs were running, they were really prisons. A woman could just go in with her own permission, but she could never get out until and unless the court gave her permission to leave. Now, these were sui juris adult women who had not committed a crime. They had gone in for protection. So my sense was, okay, we have to give protection, but with dignity. So I started this shelter for women in 1990. Um, Samia Sarwar was a woman who actually sought protection in my shelter. And she also engaged me as a lawyer for a divorce case. 
She had been separated from her husband for two years and was living with her parents. She had two children, young, two young boys. But her parents were against a divorce because the husband was her first cousin and they thought that there will be a division in the family if there is a divorce. So and they were happy. She, and why did she want to divorce him? Because he was, he was uh, according to her, what she alleged was that he was a drug addict. He used to beat her. And, um, he, you know, he was violent. So she had shifted to her parents' house. That they were quite happy with. They wanted this girl to spend her life. She was a young woman, hardly 30 years old. As a single parent, they were it was acceptable for them. But they wouldn't let her get married again. And she had fallen in love with somebody after her separation, two years after her separation. And the parents were against her getting a divorce and getting married again. So she left home and she came to this shelter and she engaged me as a lawyer to get a divorce. And um, uh, there was a lot of pressure because the parents were a very influential family from um, uh, what we now call the Khaibah Pakhtun province. It was a Pathan family and they were very influential and there was a lot of pressure on me to force her to go back. But then, of course, I had to explain to them that I don't, I, I believe in women having agency. I don't advise them one way or the other. I only give them what the law says can help them. And that's their choice, whether what they want to do, the decision is theirs. And uh, once she was there, her mother had sent a message that she wanted to see her. And uh, she wouldn't see her family her, um, uh, before that. Because she would tell me, and I remember once when she was sitting in front of me across the desk, her hands were shaking. And she said to me, Madam, they will kill me. And so I'm not going to meet them. But the mother made a request and she said, OK, I'll see my mother. So the mother walks into my office with an assassin, I believe. And he shot that girl right next to me. And I would very easily have been injured myself because a bullet just flew past my head as well. And this was an honor killing, which happened in my office. The witnesses were myself and my other lawyers who had seen the assassin come in, the mother come in, and the uncle come in. But we got nowhere with that case eventually. I was the complainant in that case. I pursued it for seven, seven years. In the went right up to the Supreme Court, saying that this, again, another addition to Ziaul Haq's Islamic laws, where you can forgive the person who actually pulled the trigger if you were an heir of the deceased person. So her husband, who was an heir, and her two young children, who were the heirs, and the parents, who were actually the ones who, who who's conspired to kill her, forgave the, um, uh, mother. Know, the, the mother. And unfortunately, this kept going on. I had challenged their ability to forgive, saying that they can't benefit by their own wrongdoing. Uh, went right up to the Supreme Court, never won that case. Free, uh, subsequently, there was a really breakthrough case where they said these kind of compromises will not be accepted by court. But it came too late for this poor woman. But I'll tell you this much. This was the changing point for this kind of social acceptance of honor killings. I remember we protested in front of the Senate of Pakistan where uh, one of the senators who was sympathetic to our cause had tabled a resolution against honor killings and the other senators almost lynched him uh, in, inside the parliament. So we were protesting outside parliaments, we were writing uh, articles, we were protesting on the streets against honor killings. And what happened 
after this murder, which is very unique, is that 300 women said the funeral prayers of this woman in front of the Lahore High Court. You may know that in under Islamic tradition as such, not a law, women do not participate in funeral prayers. But not only did women hold a funeral prayer for this woman in absentia because the family had taken away her body, these funeral prayers were led by the son, an Islamic scholar, whose father is the most well-known Islamic scholar uh, in South Asia, uh, Molana Modudi. His son led these prayers and he said, let them criticize me, but I will lead these prayers. And this was the first time women showed their power to challenge traditional, uh, traditional notions of what women could and could not do, uh, do uh, uh, under Islam. And this was not attended by only Muslim women. We had women from all faiths join us. How did that impact you? Did, did she pass away right away? She passed away on the spot. Did she, she say anything? Right did she, did she, was able to no, say? She had no, she had no chance to say anything. This man just entered the room. And because I had laid this condition that only the mother would come, I just asked him, I said, I asked the mother, who's he? And she said, he's my driver. I can't walk, so he's helping me. And just as she finished her sentence, this man just shot this girl dead right in the head. He shot uh, three or four bullets. And what did you do? I, frankly, I was shocked for a, for a few seconds. But then, because I have security all the time, I had an alarm button under my desk. And actually, I, I bent to press that alarm. That's what saved me. Otherwise, the bullet would have So he shot me. at you? I don't think he shot at me, but he was shooting at the girl who was standing right, right. next so he, to me. And so there's bullets flying your way as well. Yeah. Did you ever talk to the mother about this? No, I didn't. I never got the chance to talk to her because then, of course, I was got so busy in this kind of litigation and they had the temerity to file a case of kidnapping the girl and then arranging her, her murder against me. Of course, the courts dismissed that case as just being uh, nonsensical. But that's what was happening in this. But, you know, this is where the turning point came. And today, uh, today in Pakistan, whether you are a journalist or a Muslim scholar or a politician, nobody can now dare to stand up and say that this is part of our culture and condone honor killings. It has not affected the social mind as such. But nobody can openly defend it today publicly. Does she live with you, inside you a lot? Does she? I do, you know, but I've seen so many that in some ways, every one of those cases matters to me. I run a shelter for women and I see so many women in different degrees of distress. I've, in this shelter alone, I think I have seen seven women being killed outside the shelter, but while they were still resident in the shelter. Honor killings. Honor killings. And so each one of them lives with me. And that's what kind of made my resolve to fight against this practice very strong. And I'm very happy to say that the whole of the women's movement feels similarly as I do. I commend you. It's an amazing work that you do and important. This wasn't the only time you came under threat. What happened in 1995? Some Islamists broke into your house? They broke into our house, into my house, my family home. And um, these were some Islamists who were basically 
angry because Asma and I were defending a lot of blasphemy accused in courts. And I had just left. It was seven o'clock in the morning and I had just left the house. So they came in not knowing that I had left and they held my whole family hostage. And then, of course, um, this sister of mine who now lives in Canada somehow escaped and locked herself in the bathroom and called my other sister, Asma, who's now deceased, unfortunately, and she brought the police in. And um, there was an exchange of fire between them. And they they took my brother and sister-in-law hostage with them. But then they had to kind of stop because their car was uh, blocked by the police at the gate of the house. So they escaped. But they had brought all kind of implements to kill us. And one of them, I'm told, was actually wearing a butcher's apron. And they were going to... Uh, kill myself and Asma, who they also thought lived in that house, but she didn't. She lived in another house. So um, this was actually the incident that convinced Asma and I that while, you know, we can take a a risk with our life, we cannot put our family's life at stake. So we kind of actually begged my sister and my brother, the two siblings who were not directly involved in politics or in human rights struggle, to, to migrate to Canada. That's right, and they both and live, your where, brother and your sister both and live that's here. How, that's the reason why they came to Canada. Oh, my. Um, they're very happy here now. But, uh, you know, uh, initially, it was a very difficult decision for them to make. Both of them were in very good careers, in very senior positions, but to start off again in a different country uh, as immigrants is, was not going to be easy for them. Never is. Well, that's an incredible story. Well, you have bodyguards in Pakistan, as you say. Have you ever considered leaving Pakistan? No. I never considered leaving Pakistan uh, for several reasons. Of course, the main one was that I really believe that human rights defenders at risk should be uh, given the opportunity to leave for a while. But we do this very reluctantly because we are a very small community of human rights defenders. We don't want to deplete the human rights community in my country. So we always find this a very hard decision for human rights defenders to be resettled somewhere else. Temporarily, perhaps, uh, for a little while, while things are really hot for them. But otherwise, not really. And I think that because I have protection already, and this is my my feeling, that because I have a profile, perhaps that's a protection for me also. I think about Karima Baluch, who I who profiled in the kill list. It's very difficult for people like her, for young dissidents and leaders. She was leading a students group in, in her province of Baluchistan. There's guilt. There's you survived or you've left your colleagues behind. You're not part of it. It's very difficult to leave and, and not be part of the place that you fought for and loved so much, fought for not in the physical sense, but in the terms of human rights. And it's so hard to leave. You know, for the... For people like Karima Baloch and others who are fighting for, fighting for their right of self-determination and more autonomy for them as Baloch people, I think the threat is much greater than for people like me. We are working in a much better environment comparatively to the one that these kind of human rights activists are working. I think in many ways that while people like me have got state protection, we have visibility, we have international community intervening when there are threats against us. These are the people who are really more deserving 
of protection and international attention. And I can quite imagine a person like her, who is very Karima Baloch, who, who was very active in her, in her province, once she had to leave, she felt perhaps a little more isolated, a little more away from the struggle that she was passionately pursuing. One of the things that she was bringing up and one of the things that you have spoken out a lot about and you and I have talked about it and you call it a crime against humanity which is enforced disappearances which thousands of people in particular in Baluchistan but other places in Pakistan but Baluchistan is the largest province and a lot of the ethnic people there where the 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 state since the 1970s but particularly since the early 2000s thousands of people have gone missing. So enforced disappearances when the state comes in and they grab you without any legal recourse. They don't even admit to grabbing you. People have been in jails as long as 10 years. I interviewed somebody who who had been uh, disappeared. He was a student off the streets of Karachi for three years and tortured. In fact, he wished they would kill him. It was so bad. And still spoke out, which is incredibly brave. Talk to the, the fact that the world doesn't seem to really know about enforced disappearances, that we're not talking about that on the international stage. We hear about the Uyghurs in China, we hear about Yazidis, but you know what's happening with the enforced disappearances doesn't seem to be having any much reaction outside of Pakistan. You see, there are two or three things that are responsible for that. Not necessarily the visibility of the crime, but more about the enforceability and accountability for that crime. This is a crime that is committed by the state. It is committed clandestinely. You said that they are kept in jails. They are not kept in jails. They are kept in clandestine detention centers. Yes, torture centers. Torture centers. We have no idea where they exist. So these are secret places of detention. That's what makes it enforced disappearances. They are never allowed to be presented to a court. And they disappear for several years. Now the courts have taken up the cases of disappearances. Human Rights Commission of Pakistan filed a public interest litigation way back in 2007 in the Supreme Court on enforced disappearances. A process started, but it never ends anywhere because the courts also give us the impression that they are helpless in calling these agencies, which are mostly military agencies, to account. There is a law now, but how these are operatives who are nameless, who are faceless. So how do I know? These are people like ISI, the, the intelligence agency. The intelligence agencies, uh, both civilian, but right. mostly military. Right. The, uh, military intelligence and the uh, inter-services intelligence. They are notorious. Uh, they, they are the ones who everybody suspects. But we've never been able to prove it because how do we prove it? If I'm disappeared, somebody picks him up, me up. And they say, we don't have him. We don't have him. How do you prosecute that agency? You can't do that because there is no law that defines the limits of their jurisdiction. So how do you prove that they have gone beyond Although it is an international law in that sense. I mean, it's not within Pakistan, but it is an international it is. law against enforced disappearances. Of course there is, but Pakistan so far has not become a party to that convention. And that's one, one of our demands, that not only should they have a national and domestic law against disappearances, they must become a party to that convention. So that if, because of a lack of independence of the courts, we our systems are unable to hold that account of kind of accountability, we have an option to go to the international uh, human rights system. What about the international community? What about other countries? Other countries, you know, now that the system we have in the UN, for instance, uh, it's like the peer system, the UPR. Mm -hmm. 
it's like a very soft warning to countries. There is no accountability as such at the international level. Your, your sister, Asma, and you, you, you co-founded the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan in 1987, which we sort of talked about. But what kind of impact has this commission had on civil society in the, in the how many years now, 40 plus years? I think the main impact that I see of this is that not only has this uh, organization established its own credibility and independence, it gives the civil society some organization to look up to. So... Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, being an NGO today, has become a kind of a protection for other civil society organizations, smaller ones. It has initiated a lot of networks and platforms, creation of platforms, you know, Joint Action Committee for People's Rights, other platforms for democracy, human rights, rule of law. So it's an entity that's looked up to by other organizations. And I think today... The kind of credibility that this organization has established, I think the people really believe the state less than they believe the Human Rights Commission on facts. It gives them hope. It also gives them hope. You know, as I said, any human rights defender who believes that hope should be kept alive knows that the value of struggle is what keeps hope alive. You are one of Nelson Mandela's elders. There's a group of really esteemed people. It's Jimmy Carter. It's Zadra Hussein, who's to be the head of uh, the human rights uh, for the UN. Uh, you are on it. Mary Robinson. Gracia. Uh, Gracia Michelle. Yes. A small collection of really prominent human rights defenders, former world leaders. And the elders were part of this task force for justice, for the Pathfinders for Peace, Just and Inclusive Societies. And I went to their website and it said their goal was to deliver justice for all by 2030. That seems very ambitious. uh, UN goals that have been set up and by 2030. And we are all working towards them, towards for access to justice and the elders support the SDGs uh, of the United Nations. It's not that we will achieve universal justice by 2030. I hope that we do, but uh, that's not the expectation. The expectation is that we will set a direction towards better and improved access to justice by strengthening institutions, forming new institutions, laying the ground rules so that a rule-based order serves the people, and that Legal justice is combined with social justice. Because, you know, for people like myself, for for women in particular, for transgender communities, like in societies like ours, it's really social justice that will give rise to better legal arrangements for their protection. Even in Asia, where you, widely in Asia, it's really the denial of social and economic rights that leads to action by the victims that ends up in the violation of their civil and political rights. For instance, the right to protest. So these two rights, these two categories of rights are so interlinked in our lives that we don't separate them. And the right not to be affected by climate change. That is part of the climate justice, which is, again, social and economic rights that we are looking at. In my country, 
this has become one of the biggest and the most serious problems, uh, especially when we see the uh, extreme climate event that we've had with the flooding, the flooding in Pakistan. One third of the country. And it's not just the flooding and the effect and impact of, of the climate, but how people's social and economic rights have no hope of realization in countries like mine, where we have zero carbon footprint. And yet we suffer uh, the, the effects of climate change uh, because others are not responsible, are not acting in a responsible way. So, you know, COP27 was very important for us. And we need uh, resources for climate adjustment, for mitigation. Reparations. Reparations, loss and damage, without which we are lo- going to be lost. What are some institutions that you see that might be established before 2030 that would help, would be very significant? What in your heart would you like to see? I would like to see a much more effective accountability system at the international level. I would like to see for in the UN, for instance, and the Security Council sufficient reforms to make sure that when the Security Council exercises some of the powers it has under the UN Charter, These are weighed in the light of human rights violations, which are a core principle of the UN, and not because there are the the P5s who want to use a veto because they support one country or the other. Do you think the P5s, that'd be China, Russia, Britain, states, do you think that should be abolished? I think so. The veto power certainly should be abolished. And I think there must be more diversity in the Security Council and more balance of power between states in the Security Council. And how do you push, how do you make that change? We are trying. We are trying. We may not uh, expect this to happen very soon. But I think an international system of accountability is very important. When we are seeing populism grow, we are seeing dictatorial and and fascistic trends amongst world leaders, which is leading to national problems of a severity and of a scale that needs effective international interventions. So I think this is something that has to happen. There is a lot of despair in the world these days when it comes down to the state of democracy. I hear that from the youth. I hear that from my own 17-year-old daughter, who I think I told you wants to become someone like you, a human rights lawyer. For more than 40 years now, you've fought for human rights around the world. What, what are your views right now on the state of the world today? I mean, I know what we just talked about, but where does your own, I guess you say hope is within, it was, is within the struggle, but... Where do you see us going? I think we are going to become a little worse before we start getting better. But I think now what is of most concern to me is this loss of a commitment to values of democracy. And I think populism is affecting the mind of our youth. And they feel that, you know, wrong means are fine. Uh, Means don't matter. They don't understand that democracy is not just elections. Democracy comes with a package of values and a package of principles without which elections mean nothing. So I think this is something that young minds need to be shown by by examples. They will understand this with their own experiences. I don't think my saying anything to the youth today really matters. Uh, they think we are we are old fossils anyway, and um, but their experiences will teach you, teach them as they taught us, how 
democracy gives you protection, how these principles actually eventually save lives, save freedoms, save your liberty, your dignity. And I think these are some of the things people have to understand. And there's no room for cynicism. There's, there should be no room for cynicism. And that is what worries me. Cynicism is growing. And this is, it is this cynicism that even affects your ability to struggle. If cynicism takes over, you stop struggling. Sometimes when things get really bad is when we have some of the greatest democratic responses. I think you're absolutely right. And I think this will happen. I don't see any reason to say that struggle doesn't matter. Things never change. Things have changed. We have seen that. In my country, for instance, the struggle of women in the 1980s produced good results for women. We had a time when, just after Ziaul Haq uh, died and the regime changed, we had, a, we had an election in 1988 and every political party in Pakistan, whether it was the Islamists or the uh, liberals or the uh, more conservative ones, had to have a women's program in their manifesto. So that was our, our, our uh, achievement. We had a woman prime minister elected in Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto. So things do happen. We had a lot of legislation since then, pro-women, protection, protective legislation we have had. Now our challenge is to be able to use that legislation to actually make those laws become an instrument of social change. We are on our way. We have no reason to, to be frustrated or depressed. And we'll, we'll, we'll win a lot. Even in democracy, I think we will win a lot. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for the work you've done, not only in Pakistan, but around the world on behalf of human rights. It's, uh, it's really inspiring to sit down with you today. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say a last word. I generally, people keep saying we now have to have faith in our young people. I believe that. It's not that I have any less belief in my own ability, even at this age, to struggle and make a change. But we have less time now. So we have to look towards now the younger people to be able to carry that torch. And uh, to, I really want to die with the hope that there are sufficient number of young people who think in terms of promoting democracy in stronger institutions, right of everybody to justice. I would like to die with that thought in my mind. I, I think they do. I see it. Yeah, yeah, and we are seeing signs of it. We are seeing students now coming out, uh, understanding what's happening. Of course, there is a lot of polarization. So if there are those who stand up for human rights, there are also those who stand against human rights. The struggle will always be. Yes. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. You were listening to Quest for a Better World, the life and work of Hina Jalani. It was by Ideas producer Mary Link. And if you'd like to listen to Mary's podcast, The Kill List, which features Ms. Jalani, you can hear it anywhere you get your podcasts. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Pat Martin. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.